This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. Our aim is to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and to entertain you a little along the way. This episode, we speak with the program director from the International Council on Clean Transportation about decarbonizing aviation. In the news, a venture capital fund to grow the availability of sustainable aviation fuel, or SAF, The venerable PT-6 is 60 years old, GA aircraft shipment numbers for 2022, and AD for Continental Engines, another close call at the airport, a plea to refrain from putting your pets through the TSA x-ray machine, if you can believe that, and we wait to see if the DOJ will object to the Spirit JetBlue merger. All that and more coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. This is episode 739 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight, and with me is David Vanderhoof. He's our aviation historian from the American Helicopter Museum. Happy March, everybody. I don't know where the heck this first two months went in this year. It's been very busy. So, but looking forward to a greener conversation this evening. Also with us is Max Trescott. He's host of the Aviation News Talk podcast. He's a CFI and an expert on learning to fly the Cirrus aircraft. Hey, hello, Max, and everyone else out there. If I sound a little different this evening, it's because I'm calling in from my hotel studio here in the Knoxville Hilton Hotel, and my window looks out on the Cirrus buildings, which I've been visiting here for the last couple of days. So it's uh, my home away from home. Always great to be here at Adult Disneyland. Yeah, fantastic. Do they do tours of the facilities there? You know, for you, I'm sure they would set one up. Hmm. We have to arrange that. Well, in the meantime, we're also joined by Rob Mark. He's contributing editor to Business and Commercial Aviation, which is part of the Aviation Week group. He's a BizJet pilot, a CFI, former air traffic controller and supervisor, and he publishes the Jetwine blog. Oh, yes. Good evening. I, I know it sounded like I wasn't paying attention, but I was getting so wrapped up in all those nice things. So, Dan, when you hear them say bad things about me, you'll know that they did say nice things. Okay, I'm just kidding. But listen, thank you for inviting me. And I just wanted to mention that I heard somebody say uh, something about uh, it turning green uh, out there. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it was David. And uh, I at uh, oh, probably 3 or 4 o'clock this morning, I was woken up by thunderstorms overhead here in Chicago, which we don't usually have in February. So uh, it was that was some pretty mean weather that went north of us uh, uh, we we got a, we got the tail end of it, but uh, it was pretty mean for those uh, folks. Well, you guys are probably getting it out east, aren't you? Oh, sure. It's been it's been crazy everywhere, practically one way or the other. Strange. Yeah, we've had three days of rain in Knoxville as well. Yep. So once again, we've been unable to get through the introductions without talking about the weather. So we'll try. We'll keep trying. It's an aviation podcast. Pilots and geeks like us talk about the weather. It's there just is. a That's fact true. of life. It, it could have been much worse. I could have started to sing, Do you know the way to San Jose? Da, 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 da. But I didn't, did I? Good thing. Or maybe I did. Okay, I'm sorry. 
All right, our guest is Dan Rutherford. He's the program director at the International Council on Clean Transportation, the ICCT. Now, that organization works to improve the environmental performance and energy efficiency of road, marine, and air transportation. Of course, we're going to focus on air transportation, and Dan directs ICCT's aviation and marine programs. He helps national and international regulators develop policies to reduce air pollution and greenhouse gases from planes and ships. Now, Dan has also helped design environmental policies at the UN's International Civil, Civil Aviation Organization and the International Maritime Organization for over a decade. So, Dan, welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Great. Thanks for having me here. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you today. Now, you've been with the ICCT for for many years. You've really made a career out of it, no? Yeah, yeah. I'm one of the the graybeards, so to speak, here. Uh, I joined about 15 years ago as we were just getting started. Uh, And now we're up to, I think, about 140 staff worldwide uh, working out of six offices. Um, So, you know, uh, we're we're mostly known for uh, commissioning the first work that helped uncover the Volkswagen Dieselgate scandal. Ah. Uh, But my colleagues and I, you know, work across all modes of transport to try and uh, set better uh, environmental policy for uh, cars, trucks, fuels, planes, and ships. Important work, for sure. Well, we're going to start off with some of the aviation news from the past week. Our first story comes from CNBC. This is United Airlines' five other companies launch effort to develop sustainable aviation fuel. Now, this is about a venture capital fund that was created. It's called the United Airlines Ventures Sustainable Flight Fund. And its objective is to invest in startup firms and technology that grows the availability of sustainable aviation fuel, or SAF. Now, the initial investors provided more than $100 million. And besides United Airlines, they include Air Canada, Boeing, GE Aerospace, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Honeywell. United CEO Scott Kirby had an interesting quote. He said, this fund is unique. It's not about offsets or things that are just greenwashing. Instead, we're creating a system that drives investment to build a new industry around sustainable aviation fuel, essentially from scratch. So I think uh, from all indications, the the airline industry would like to see more SAF available and at at lower cost. So this is uh, kind of an interesting way that United is, well, leading at least one of the charges. It, it's an interesting concept. I mean, that we've because I come from a business aviation side, and and of course we've been wrestling with this for uh, a couple of years. Uh, although it took uh, it took them a little while to get going, but I, I still, um, you know, Dan's probably the better one to answer this. But I wonder if this is a uh, a really solid move on United's part, or if this is. A little bit more of a of a of a PR uh, uh, effort, uh, uh, only because I'm a little skeptical of of airline press releases. But that's just me. Yeah, I mean, um, we've done some work around sustainable aviation fuels, obviously, uh, and there, there's a lot of hope in the promise of them being a technology to decarbonize aviation. But uh, to date, uh, volumes have been minimal, right? 
Like um, as of now, sustainable aviation fuels account for about 0.1% of global jet fuel use. So to flip it around, 99.9% of energy use in aviation is still fossil jet fuel. So we really need to find ways to bring the cost down and scale them. Um, if I'm reading United's announcement correctly, this looks to be kind of like a hybrid measure where they're kicking in some funds and then they're hoping that um, that flyers themselves will, instead of purchasing offsets, uh, also contribute money to help uh, pay for the incremental cost of SAF. So I think that's new and interesting, but this is the, the core question, right? How do we pay what's called the green premium for low carbon fuels and planes? Yes, uh, the the customer participation aspect of this is is quite interesting. Um, United is offering 500 United mileage plus frequent flyer miles to the first 10,000 customers who donate to the fund. Now it can be small amounts, a dollar, three fifty, or or seven dollars to the fund. Um, and uh, in addition to that, the United website and app. Uh, will show customers who are looking to book flights the estimated carbon footprint of a particular flight. It seems like a uh, interesting way to get the you know the general flying public involved in this as well. Well, they say they hope that they can raise enough money to build a new SAF refinery capable of producing up to forty million gallons of SAF each year. Max, what would your guess be as to how many gallons of uh, fuel that uh, United uses every year? Oh, I think a lot more than that. Yeah, in 2021, it says uh, 2.7 billion gallons. So 40 million gallons would be less than 2% of just United's usage. So this really is the veritable drop in the bucket. Well, I guess we have to start somewhere if you believe in this. And uh, there are an awful lot of people. I'd swear I remember somebody, maybe it wasn't an airline, but but somebody doing some sort of offset program where you could, uh, if you flew a particular airline or whatever, that there were going to be some sort of um, uh, some green offsets uh, for your carbon footprint uh, somewhere. I don't know. It's a couple of years ago. I may not remember that exactly but um but i think you we have a this is a big problem i mean if you believe in it that's that's not nearly enough because as dan said the amount that they're producing right now is is absolutely minimal and the one thing united didn't say is where this plant might be based uh from what i've heard it really needs to be based out east or at least in the Midwest somewhere, uh, because most of the plants, uh, I believe, and, and, and again, this might be one for Dan, but I believe the plants that, that are currently functioning are out on the, in the western part of the states. And, uh, and it's not just amount of, uh, I'm sorry, it's not just about how much we can produce, but it's the distribution uh, that's also a major problem uh, with SAF because, it, it, again, if you're making, you know, 20,000 gallons a, a day or whatever, but it's all in the western part of the states, how do you get it to the airplanes at, uh, at White Plains, New York? Uh, I don't know if this stuff is, I think there's still a discussion about whether SAF will be able to travel through 
the, the same pipelines that uh, a regular Jet A does or, or something like that. But if it can't, I, I can't imagine how that. So, so again, how it's going to get where it needs to be. So there are some really major problems, I think, that we still have to face. Uh, and, uh, but again, it, you've got to start somewhere, I guess. One aspect of this, I think, is that uh, the airlines are ready to put SAF in their aircraft, right? They don't have to do anything to uh, to modify the aircraft or anything. So it's it's a solution or it's part of a solution that they don't have to take responsibility for or pay for. It's not like, well, we need, you know, new engine technology or we need new airframe technology or these things that would directly increase the the costs to the to the airlines and have a, you know, huge development costs and all of that. SAF is like, well, the airlines can say, well, if you give it to me, I'll use it. It's not that they absolve themselves from it. And we can see here with United and these others, they're, you know, not $100 million. Uh, they're not absolving of it themselves of it. But uh, it, it's kind of a different sort of uh, component to the overall picture here. And I think we'll get into that with, uh, with Dan coming up. Um, but United has done other things too. Just uh, last month, uh, the um, United uh, Tall Grass and Green Plains formed a joint venture uh, to develop uh, SAF using some kind of a, a technology using ethanol. I think this is maybe a little bit different than some of the some of the other approaches. So they've uh, been planning on you know, developing a, a facility to actually create it. So United is looking at this on, on several fronts from different directions, I guess. All right, Rob, the PT-6, this is changing gears completely. The, the venerable Pratt & Whitney Canada PT-6 has <laughs> uh, been around for quite a long time. They've reached well, kind of a milestone here. Well, the PT-6 has been around for, my gosh, I don't know how many. 60 years. And that's a long time, and I can't ima- I can't even uh, uh, remember how many times I've heard people say uh, they would fly in this airplane or another airplane or over this route or another route if they just had a PT six on the front end of the airplane, uh, and uh, because the PT sixes, uh, the the turboprop uh, uh, engine, have have been powering so many airplanes for so long. That everybody just, they just, it's generically the uh, turboprop engine of choice. And uh, so, I mean, didn't you used to work for that uh, company, uh, Max? Pratt & Whitney. Of course, this is the Pratt & Whitney Canada that does the, the PT-6, other generally smaller engines than Pratt & Whitney in the U.S. But uh, according to this AIN online article, Pratt's produced more than 64,000 PT-6s since 1963 on more than 155 different aviation applications. And, of course, it's it's been used not just on airplanes, uh, the turboshaft version on helicopters, but it's also been used on boats. It's been used as APUs, hovercraft, even, uh, even land vehicles. In fact, if you uh, go back to the late 60s, uh, there was even a Lotus four-wheel drive uh, IndyCar that used uh, a, a version of the PT-6 um, to power it. Uh, it showed up in a, uh, in a Lotus Formula One car 
also. Of course, those were, were banned when everybody decided that turbine cars were going to blow the others right out of the uh, right off of the racetrack. Uh, but yeah, the PT6 uh, has been around for for a long, long time. A lot of different variants of it. Really wide thrust range, horsepower range of these engines. But uh, it's a big milestone. And let's see, there was one other. Um, yeah, Pratt and Whitney Canada says they've accumulated one billion flight hours in the PT6, which is just uh, just phenomenal. That that's a lot of hours, and there really hasn't been much of anything uh, to. Uh, to compete with them, uh, I think the uh, the Allison engines that were made years ago uh, were much larger uh, horsepower than the uh, the PT6 is, and uh, and of course now the uh, the new competitor is really the GE uh, Catalyst uh, engine that right. uh, that General Electric has built from scratch for uh, for the uh, Denali, which is the uh, new single engine Beechcraft that looks. An awful lot like a uh, a Pilatus PC12. Uh, of course, now the Catalyst I don't believe is certified yet, but uh, they're hoping that uh, this is going to be a major shock to the uh, the PT6 users of the world because it's going to be so much more efficient. They claim, but also that it's going to be uh, uh, so much easier to maintain. Uh, the much of the uh, uh, GE Catalyst, sorry, I don't mean to take away from the Pratt & Whitney people, but much of the GE uh, Catalyst engine is uh, is built with uh, 3D printing. So in, in places on the engine where in the old days you had to have a special wrench to get into that corner to loosen this hose or, that, or remove this part, uh, GE just built the whole darn thing in one single unit so that if it fails, you just, you know, uh, like like a line replaceable avionics unit, uh, and and so they. Uh, but again, you know whether uh, whether it actually turns out, I don't know. But uh, time is certainly marching on in terms of uh, efficiency because uh, I don't have the story in front of me. But what did it say? The uh, the PT sixes of today are uh, half again, uh, you know, fifty percent more efficient than they were. Uh, 60 years ago? Right, 50% better power-to-weight ratio and a 20% better specific fuel consumption. That's compared to the original engine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, the development work uh, continues, but like in, you know, anywhere else, if you're the the long-time market leader, you know, you've got to keep your eye on the competition because, uh, in this case, GE, because they can come up with something that leapfrogs what you've got. So I'm sure Pratt is working very dil- diligently to meet the, you know, meet the competition. All right. We also have some uh, numbers from Gamma, the General Aviation Manufacturers Association. And they have a, a report that they issue each year. And they look at piston airplanes, turboprops, business jets, uh, as well as piston and turbine helicopters and look at shipments for the past year compared to the year before. And uh, we, we see some positive numbers this year, Rob. It is positive. And, and of course, I, I did see your um, uh, your uh, note about uh, uh, com- comparisons uh, because we've had a few, uh, a few quieter uh, years uh, during the pandemic, uh, also during the, uh, the Great Recession back uh, in 2009, 
2010. Um, but still, the, these numbers are, again, a, a move in the right direction. It's what Wichita uh, really likes to see. And um, uh, But I, I, again, as far as comparisons go, you, you can't forget the days when I was a mere child, uh, back in the 70s, that, uh, uh, you know, the uh, aircraft manufacturers, the Cessnas, the Beaches, the Pipers, produced something like 17,000 aircraft in one year. And so these are great numbers. I mean, we have to keep it in perspective. The world is simply not the same as it was uh, 50 years ago. Uh, but again, it's, uh, it's a move in the right direction. So what we see are, for example, piston airplane shipments are up 8.2% in 2022 versus the year before. Turboprops are up 10.4%. Business jets are flat 0.3%, rather. Um, And overall, for all of those, it's up 6.5%. Billing is up 5.8% to $22.9 billion dollars. As far as the helicopters go, piston helicopters are up in 2022 over 2021, 7.2%. Turbines up 7.6%, overall 7.5%. And helicopter billing is up 6.8%. But like you say, uh, Rob, uh, and, and as I've you know, brought up many times, when you when you see a comparison of this year versus the prior year, you always have to ask, yeah, well, what about the year before that and the year before that and the year before that? Because a little uptick that looks great this year, it, it still may put you still behind the, you know, the historic numbers. So, so we kind of took a, a little look at that. And the pandemic did have an effect. And as you said, Rob, uh, other... Uh, Economic cycles certainly certainly have an effect. Um, for example, um, the turboprops we say we see are up ten percent, ten point four percent this year. Last year in twenty twenty two over twenty twenty one they were up nineteen percent, but the year prior to that uh, they were down fifteen point six percent. So the numbers do swing kind of uh, broadly, but we are still seeing some improvement here. Well, and of course, one thing that these numbers don't give you, uh, th- these are deliveries. Uh, it does not uh, reflect the, uh, especially in the turbine uh, market, it does not reflect the backlog that some of these manufacturers have uh, of airframes that have been uh, purchased, but not even close yet to being delivered. Uh, the Gulf Streams, the, uh, the Bombardier aircraft, the, uh, uh, the Dassault, uh, I mean, the Falcon 6X is coming, the 10X is coming. Uh, they have many, many orders on the books. Uh, in fact, Max might know the uh, answer to this, but I know there's quite a bit of, uh, of course you do, don't shake your head. It just completely distracts me when I'm trying to see, and, and people are saying, what in the world is he talking about? Um, but um, uh, the Vision Jet has a fair backlog, I believe, uh, also. Uh, does it not, Max, from your uh, understanding? I, I think uh, Cirrus has uh, got a couple years' worth of uh, orders for just about all their airplanes, so pistons as well as uh, Vision Jets. Yeah, it'd be nice to look at this, or interesting to look at this data on a manufacturer-by-manufacturer manufacturer basis. Uh, ah, Gamma, Gamma does that. All right. Well, we have an item. Well, this is actually in the Federal Register. Airworthiness directives. Continental Aerospace Technologies reciprocating engines. And there is an, um, an AD out on certain Continental engines 
Rob, this was about a quality escape, I guess. I, I'd never heard the phrase quality escape before. Oh, yeah, that's that, that's standard. Yeah, is that, yeah, is yeah. that pretty standard? Yeah, oh. we, we use that at Pratt & Whitney, too, yeah. Oh, I see. So why did you do that? And you can say, it just escapes me. I don't know why I did that. Um, but no, I'd never actually heard of a quality escape before. It got to the customer. It got outside the company. I see. Okay. Well, anyway, uh, Continental brought the, a service bulletin out a uh, oh, month ago, uh, somewhere in there, about uh, some of the rings that uh, help keep the uh, crankshaft in uh, in line. And the uh, it, it apparently got away from them even more because, uh, again, while it started out as a service bulletin, it quickly escalated into a uh, an airworthiness directive. Uh, some of the limitations initially, Continental said, well, if you've been operating your airplane for more than 200 hours, you're probably okay, and uh, uh, things like that. And then they said, uh, we changed our mind. Um, no, actually, anybody that's uh, you know flying an airplane that has one of these motors uh, needs to uh, c- comply with the uh, service bulletin and um, uh, ASAP. And, of course, these motors that we're talking about are in uh, uh, the Cirrus SR-22s uh, and uh, 22Ts, I believe, and also uh, in some of the Bonanza models and and a few others. And uh, uh, one friend of uh, the Aviation News Talk show and a, a buddy of mine, Mark Eppner, here in Chicago, uh, uh, who uh, had an engine failure in his SR-22 uh, last year, uh, just got his airplane back not too long ago, had a, a remanufactured engine put in it, and uh, some of the parts, uh, it came out, are under the AD. And when I saw him last week, he went, I, I, I just can't, I can't cut a break. You know, I mean, I, I figured I've got a practically a brand new engine in this airplane. I've had, I don't know, 50 hours on it, and now I've got to get a ferry permit to get it down to Peoria so I can get it to the uh, to the shop to to do the inspection and make sure everything is uh, is all right. And right now that's what they're doing there. They want to inspect these engines to see if they did indeed um uh, no we can't say slip through. Escape if the quality somehow escaped uh into the into the world with the rest of us uh or if if the aircraft engine's okay. That's right. It's an inspection to see if the counterweight retaining spring uh, rings in the counterweight groove were correctly installed in the crankshaft. And so uh, the FAA had received report of um, several incidents, uh, including two ground engine seizures and one in-flight loss of engine oil pressure as a result of this improper installation of the counterweight retaining rings during manufacture. Sometimes these problems, you see these problems because of a manufacturing issue. Sometimes it's a maintenance issue where that, you know, the problem is not in the originally delivered unit, but can occur in the maintenance and overhaul portion of this thing. But this is a manufacturing defect. Yeah, and sometimes those things happen when you've got a new person on the line and they are not doing it quite the same way that the, the prior person on the line did it or somehow the process gets lost and people aren't you know, pushing those clips quite as deeply seating them as they're, 
they're supposed to be. Yeah, it's really a, a big um, a big deal because this affects about 2,200 engines, uh, all Continental six-cylinder engines built since June of, boy, I think it's 2021. It might it be 2022, but I think it's uh, from uh, 2021. And with the AD, these airplanes are effectively grounded. 22 aer- 2,200 airplanes now cannot fly until they have uh, gone to a shop where it's estimated it'll take 18 hours to remove one, two, or three cylinders, depending upon the engine type, uh, to, to make the inspection. Uh, and the real issue is uh, maintenance shops are well booked up right now. So suddenly we're throwing another, uh, what, 36,000 mechanic hours you know, into the system, which means there are going to be some airplanes that are waiting months before they can fly again. And you brought up a good point, Max, about the um, the cause for this, the root cause for this. And this is something that Continental would be will be looking at. Why did this um, escape? How did this quality escape come about? As you know, Rob suggested, it could be a, a training issue. Uh, it could be an inspection issue. There are many, many possibilities. But what Continental has to do is get to the bottom of how did this happen, and what do they need to change? Uh, what processes do they need to change so that it doesn't happen again, if not with this particular piece, with some other? All right. You know, it seems like another week goes by. We have another incident at an airport. And uh, this is uh, from AvWeb. Regional jet aborts landing to avoid departing flight at Burbank. Max T, boy, these, these things just seem to be happening with increasing frequency. Yeah, so this latest incident happened in Burbank on the uh, 22nd of uh, February. Coincidentally, I flew into Burbank on the 23rd, and I also flew commercially uh, into that airport because my vision jet trip started in Southern California, so I took Southwest to to get down there. Uh, but essentially, this is yet another case of an aircraft uh, being cleared with uh, just not enough time for the preceding aircraft on final to uh, you know to get there. Uh, so we saw a similar incident uh, with a Southwest and a FedEx down in Austin, Texas, in which in that case, the Southwest was very slow to uh, to get going. Here's a case where the distance was just so short, it's surprising that the controller cleared the airliner on the ground to take off. 1.3 miles was the distance that the aircraft on final had before uh, landing. That's going to work out just fine if you're clearing Cessnas into Palo Alto Airport, my home airport, 1.3 miles. Yeah, we can make that work. But for an airline, you know, the, those planes are moving much faster, uh, and it takes a while for the departing aircraft to uh, clear the runway. So, yeah, this is one of those, uh, I, I don't know if we'd call it a close call, but it just kind of raises your eyebrows and makes you uh, wonder what the heck was going on there. Yeah. Well, I listened. Um, I listened to the recording that uh, Avweb put on the um, uh, on their uh, story. It was taken from audio grabbed off the uh, liveatc.net site. And uh, in fact, we're going to have Dave Pasco on uh, next month, I believe. No, maybe it's in April from liveatc.net. Because every time something happens, they go to liveatc.net. I mean, Dave's got to be a millionaire. Anyway, I'm sorry. but uh, and, and what I thought was interesting is that uh, whoever did the recording grabbed a couple of different channels at the same time. So you could hear the, the tower controller, you could hear the ground controller, and sometimes it was all mixed up. And, and there were two uh, women working the position. So it wasn't always clear exactly who was saying what. Um, but I, I do believe from what I heard uh, that the woman working the tower position was, uh, was a trainee. Uh, because uh, she she kind of 
you know, coughed a few times. I don't mean uh, literally cough, but uh, uh, was a little uh, apprehensive about was it left, was it right? Uh, uh, you know the the call signs, and uh, uh, but again at that at that airport, uh, she was also working uh, traffic on two six and also traffic on three three, and a crossing runway uh, situation is always more complex than a single runway. Uh, but again the. Um, uh, the, the conversation sounded to me like uh, she was in training because there were a couple of times where I heard her say something and I thought I could hear a, a man's voice in the background. Uh, and uh, and she got a little, she got busy. I mean, she did. Uh, but uh, but again, where they came, you know, I didn't see the, uh, the uh, flight aware or radar uh, 24, flight radar 24, uh, uh, hits on this, so I don't know exactly where the uh, landing airplane was. Um, but uh, 1.3 miles, as Max said, oh my God, I thought it was bad enough a couple of weeks ago when uh, the Austin controller let that uh, 737 go with the uh, FedEx on a three mile final. Uh, it, but again, I, I couldn't quite tell. Maybe someone else will go back and, uh, you know, listen to the uh, audio and might pick up something different from what I did. Uh, but I didn't quite hear her put the one regional jet in, in uh, not position and hold, uh, line up and wait. I'm sorry, I'm showing my age. Uh, but uh, so I apparently the uh, airplane was on the runway and I heard her say, you know, whatever the sky west was, you know, go around. And and that was it. And uh, it got a little confusing after that because, of course, when you're expecting someone to land and then they're suddenly back in your airspace when you were busy anyway, it just makes a, a, a difficult situation even worse. Uh, but more to come on this, I'm sure. Mm, yeah. Well, this next story uh, had me alternating between being shocked and laughing hysterically. Max Trescott, tell us tell us what's been going on here with the TSA and X-ray machines. Well, that's why I added this story to the mix here. <laughs> this is kinda kinda surprising. This comes from the Washington Post and the headline says TSA wants you to stop putting your pets through the X ray machine. And of course that's you just gotta shake your head and think people actually do that. Uh, not only that, TSA went so far as to do a demonstration for the press at Dulles Airport in suburban Washington, D.C. to show the proper way to uh, screen their pooch. And they uh, have little Pablo the Chihuahua, age 12. He does look like he's showing his age. And they show him being walked through the metal detector by uh, his owner, who was six years old. Pretty funny. The dog is older than the uh, the girl who's giving the, uh, the demonstration here. But apparently the root of the problem is that uh, people like putting their uh, pooches in various uh, carry-on bags and then they toss those uh, carrier bags or cases on the uh, on the belt and it goes through the machine and basically TSA is trying to get the word out hey yeah, no animal or person should be exposed to extra x-rays that they uh, don't need. So treat those animals as if they were a baby in a stroller or sensitive film in a camera and walk them through the metal detector. Now, they did say that uh, if you're 
uh, animal was wearing some type of uh, coat, uh, then they might, uh, you know, coat or sweater, they might subject the pet to a pat down, but that disrobing the animal is not necessary. <laughs> That's the part where I start laughing. Oh, it wouldn't be a pat down. It would be a pet down. A pet there down. There you go. Uh, okay. But uh, can you, okay, this is another one of those, are you kidding me? <laughs> but then I heard of people years ago that had babies in uh, carry uh, carry uh, baskets and and they put them through the x-ray machine uh, and unless a TSA person is there to say oh no 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 don't do that you uh, yeah well you uh, seems like common sense yeah, well but let's face it common sense is variable oh, uh, gone. yeah not common not common. All right, quickly, one more story uh, before we uh, move on with Dan. And this is from Fox Business. JetBlue and Spirit insist merger won't lead to higher airline fares as DOJ circles. So uh, we've talked about the JetBlue Spirit merger before. The Justice Department antitrust division hasn't yet made a decision on whether or not to block this merger or let it proceed. Um but the airlines, uh, at least the CEOs, are saying that uh, this would lead to uh, good results. What do you expect them to say? <laughs> I know. They say it would lead to lower prices. Uh, Hayes, the CEO of JetBlue, said that fares are a function of capacity. The article says that in Spirit uh, flights would, ex- would adopt JetBlue's seat configuration. That would save customers money because the planes would spend more time in the air and less time on the ground. Meanwhile, um, Christy, the CEO of Spirit, also had uh, some positive th- things to say about the merger. But I think the article says that the, the DOJ has a week left, I guess, before they have to um, decide whether or not they're going to take action to oppose this or not. So it sounds like it's down to the wire. Yeah, and of course, when I read the headline that said, oh, no, prices won't go up, my first reaction was, oh, sure. <laughs> it's it's easy for executives to, uh, you know, claim this prior to the merger. Uh, it, you know, I think one thing people should understand is that often, uh, about 40% of mergers I read, the executives are given additional bonuses. I mean, literally millions of dollars to complete the merger. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> I don't. I wouldn't say that they are fudging or saying anything to make that merger complete, but you know, many of them have huge financial uh, incentives to to make it complete. So we will see what happens. I just saw a press release today that said Spirit will begin serving San Jose. <laughs> so I guess that'll be interesting to to see. I, I, I I'm hoping I will continue to have other other good choices, but at least there will now be a new low cost choice coming to uh, San Jose. Now, I have a very unusual reason to hope that this merger doesn't go through. And if I can share it with you. Sure, please. So when we first started doing our research on the fuel efficiency of U.S. airlines, this goes back to 2010, uh, there were 15 airlines that we included in our ranking. uh, And we developed this statistical approach to to kind of benchmark fuel efficiency, um, you know, which was important because – we needed to find a way to equitably compare like Southwest to Continental, right? Like those are very different airlines. Um, over time, as there have been more mergers and consolidations, the number of airlines has dropped. 
and it's now at the point where I think the last time we did the study, it was either 11 or 12 airlines. And our model started to lose statistical significance wow. because we were losing, in essence, the data we needed to do the regression properly. So I would guess if this merger goes through, the, the model will completely fall apart. We'll no longer be able to release the study. So fingers <laughs> crossed. Yeah, As a geek, I hope it doesn't go through. All right. Dan, the International Council on Clean Transportation, it's an independent organization, correct? It's a nonprofit? That's right. What are the primary uh, means by which uh, the, the mission and goals are accomplished? Is it a matter of uh, doing research and analysis, or what's kind of the, the basic operation look like? So um, we are a little bit of an unusual organization. Most of our staff are either scientists or engineers, uh, and our sort of theory of change is that policymakers need better research at the right time uh, and in, in sort of a transparent and credible, credible manner in order to uh, set good policy. Uh, and so it's, it's very much research focused. We're not, we're not campaigners. We're not lobbyists. Um, the focus is figuring out what sort of data, you know, regulators at the EPA or FAA or European Commission need in my case, uh, to set regulations for aircraft emissions and do the research and, and make sure it gets into their hands at the right time and the right place. Dan, you mentioned the, um, the how large the group was before, but uh, can you tell us a little bit about the board? Who are the people that provide the leadership for this organization? Yeah, so the Council in International Council on Train, Clean Transportation, um, that's meant to signify this uh, group of environmental regulators worldwide that uh, we work with. Uh, the board itself is includes some of those members and then includes some retired regulators. For example, um, Margot Oge, who previously uh, led the EPA's Office of Transportation and Air Quality. Uh, she's the director of our board. And Michael Walsh, who was her predecessor at EPA, is also on our board. So those are the types of people who help direct our work. And, you know, one of the things that comes up in conversations about carbon emissions uh, coming from aviation is the uh, the percentage of the total that's attributable to to aviation and, and generally that's a pretty small number isn't it yes so what you'll typically hear is aviation's about two percent of anthropogenic co2 and some people then take that and say well see if, if we're the small part of the problem then you know why why should we you know should we care so much and um, I mean, I can think of at least two responses that I often give to that. But I'm interested in hearing uh, how, how you respond to that. Well, it's a little bit of a Rorschach test, right? Um, so you, you can say aviation's 2% of uh, carbon dioxide emissions, or you can say it's 3.5% of the total climate impact, taking into account some other, you know, short-lived climate pollutant impacts like contrails and NOx. Uh, but the thing you have to realize is that it's globally, it's pretty rare to get onto a plane. Some 90% of the world's population doesn't fly in a given year, and only about 2% of us are frequent flyers. So you have to kind of take that into account when you hear this 2% or 3%. I mean, if you are a frequent flyer, aviation can be 
20% of your carbon footprint. In my case, it's extreme because I travel for a lot of UN meetings. Uh, and in a typical year, uh, aviation is 75% of my own carbon footprint. Yeah, one of the things that I say to, to people is that we all have to do something about this. And, and kind of a related comment is even if you don't think that aviation is such a great contributor to this, it almost doesn't matter because the the rest of the world will provide the pressure to force you to do something about it if you don't if you don't do it on your own. I mean, we see it all the time with um, comments from people about uh, executives flying on business jets and how how a terrible thing that is. And instead of arguing about well, how terrible is it? I mean, I can make the argument that it doesn't matter. It's bad PR. If if you don't, you know, if you're not responding to this. So I, I think that, you know, the, the motivation should be there either because you believe in it or because um, you're going to get pressured to, to do something if you uh, if you don't on your own. So w- when we look about or when we look at, um, you know, decarbonizing aviation, there are different kinds of solutions, right? Some of them are technology solutions. Some of them are perhaps policy solutions. Uh, maybe you can talk about some of those different kinds of solutions in those categories. Yeah, certainly. Uh, so we released a study in summer of last year where we looked at potential technology pathways to get to net zero emissions in 2050. And to define the term, you know, uh, you have emissions directly from aircraft. We want to cut those as much as possible. Uh, but there will, still will be some residual emissions from like the production of the fuel uh, that we think we might need to uh, mop up through something like carbon capture and storage. Uh, but there's a lot of, uh, of momentum to, to getting to net zero by 2050. Uh, in our report, we investigated um, fuel efficiency, sustainable aviation fuels, zero emission planes, carbon pricing, and then modal shift as kind of our key key levers. Um, and we concluded that about 60% of the emission cuts we will need will come from clean fuels. So that's a combination of sustainable aviation fuels and potentially something like hydrogen uh, for the future. We concluded about a third of the cuts will come from improvements in fuel efficiency. Uh, and those are from like new cleaner aircraft and also reducing um, emissions due to operational efficiency. So improving load factors, better routing, reduced congestion, et cetera. Uh, and then the balance would come from carbon pricing and a little bit of modal shift. So in some markets, you could see passengers shifting from planes to high-speed rail, for example. Um, but those are the big buckets. Um, one of the key questions is, who's going to pay for this all? Hmm. Uh, and according to one estimate, uh, reaching net zero emissions in 2050 will cost about four trillion dollars in total. It's a big number. Um, is that, that global equates, or is that the U.S.? That's that's global. Global. Um, so it's it's a large number, but as you know, uh, there are a lot of planes in the sky and a lot of tickets are sold. So if you convert that to sort of an annual cost and divide it by the number of round trip tickets, it comes out to about an additional fifty dollars per round trip ticket. So. Um, not not huge, not small, but uh, as we know, aviation is a very price conscious industry. So 
it's one of the key questions, right? We just touched on it with the the United announcement is um, who's going to pay for this? Uh, one thing I was going to ask, uh, Dan, is that uh, when I was being uh, somewhat uh, less than enthusiastic about the United pro- uh, proposal, um, when you say it, it could cost just $50 more per round-trip ticket, I, I think that's the, the issue that is of a big concern to a lot of travelers is they go, well, so I paid my 50 but w- w- where did that money go? And and how I don't really understand how that fifty dollars extra that you mentioned is going to you know get out into the real world and actually help slow the uh, uh, you know or eliminate the uh, the carbon uh, issues that we're dealing with now. I mean, what might you say to somebody like that? Right. So the majority of the money will go to clean fuels, right? So. Um I think if you found a mechanism for tracing how an extra charge goes directly to uh, a clean fuel, I, I would hope that consumers would support that. But um, we've certainly seen, you know, tax uh, fuel surcharges in the past that aren't exactly popular with consumers. But uh, I, I guess I defer to the experts here in in the room on how to actually make those stick and how to make them credible <laughs> to the to the typical flyer, because I'm sure there are a lot of games to be played. Sure. Well, when you talk, Dan, about the roughly $50 per ticket per flight, are you speaking about a literal tax or it's just that when you take how much we have to spend in general, that's reducing it down to sort of that common base? Or or are we talking about an actual tax that would be added to ticket prices? So that figure I offered, you know, $50 per round trip ticket, that's just the, the net sum of how much it will cost. That's independent of how you pay for it. And we are starting to see different mechanisms for that, right? Some some airlines are pursuing direct charges for sustainable aviation fuels or voluntary contributions. Um, the European Union is very much focused on the taxation side of things. So, um, you know, making sure that there's an emissions charge for airlines that operate within their airspace. Uh, the U.S. is headed more in the direction of subsidies for sustainable aviation fuels. And you might have caught that there are pretty significant tax incentives for clean fuels in the Inflation Reduction Act that was passed last year. So there's there's a little bit of a push and pull with uh, some governments pursuing charging, some governments putting, uh, pursuing subsidies, and then airlines kind of doing what they can on the margin. Well, that's that's kind of interesting because and this sort of gets starts to get into the sort of the policy considerations, perhaps because uh, um, different different regions uh, have, as you've pointed out, different approaches uh, to this. Uh, meanwhile, aviation, of course, is I mean it's an international industry. So how how do the regional differences get get reconciled in a way that you know they're all working? towards a mm. towards a common goal. I'm happy to say that we're making progress on this finally. <laughs> um, the first 15 years that I did this work, uh, there was very much a mentality of like, this is a global industry. Let's let the United Nations solve it. And so we saw a lot of governments basically try to uh, outsource their emissions problem to the International Civil Aviation Organization, or ICAO. 
Um, full disclosure, I participate in ICAO. I'm a technical observer to that process. But it's a pretty slow and dysfunctional organization. And so what we saw was government saying, hey, ICAO, you're in charge. And we saw 15 minute, uh, sorry, 15 years of kind of wheel spinning. Uh, where we are now is increasingly governments are saying, like, no, we need to take the lead in controlling emissions. Um, there is a pretty straightforward way of doing this, and that is each country, in essence, regulates the emissions from aircraft that depart its airports. So if you're flying between San Francisco and Newark, uh, both ends of that flight would, in essence, fall under U.S. governance. If you're flying from San Francisco to Beijing, uh, that departing flight would be regulated by the U.S., and the return flight from Beijing to San Francisco would be regulated by China. And that's an emerging system that uh, I think is pretty straightforward. It aligns with more or less where the fuel is sold. And then it, it does offer what we call the differentiation option. And that is, if you're a richer country like the U.S., you can move faster on your requirements. And if you're a poorer country like China or India or Brazil, uh, you can go a little bit slower. And every carrier that flies that route gets the same rules. Hmm. So you don't end up distorting competition across like United Airlines versus Air China. Yes, yes. Well, Dan, in, in the world, uh, I remember, as you said, 15 years ago, it was let the United Nations fix it. Uh, most of the, uh, the driving force seemed to come from Europe. Uh, in terms of uh, the, you know, we've got to we've got to clean up the environment uh, and and many of the issues that we now take for granted here in the states. But uh, do you find that uh, it is still like that? Is uh, or has it balanced out? Or uh, I guess maybe a, a better question would be how how does South America do uh, in terms of uh, you know working on global emissions reduction or or East Asia or that sort of thing? It's, it's a good question. I would say that Europe is still in the lead. Um, I think there's a higher environmental consciousness there generally. And then also, importantly, they do have a pretty well-developed rail system. So you have alternatives if people want to travel reasonably short distances. Um, so, But we're seeing more awareness here in the U.S., especially under this presidential administration, Overseas, uh, you know, it, it varies and it's it's it legitimately where a country is on its environmental, sorry, its economic trajectory influences, um, you know, the awareness here. So, I mean, if you if you're living in India, like economic development is paramount and most people have never even been on a plane. So it's more about development and access. Uh, but we're starting to see some interesting examples like. Brazil is potentially a huge producer of sustainable aviation fuel uh, because of their huge biomass resources. And so even though Brazil's relatively, you know, on the emerging market side of thing, things, they do see this new business case for producing clean fuels. And they're a little bit out of head, out further than you'd expect, just thinking about like their, their national wealth. Uh, Dan, I wanted to ask you um, specifically about hydrogen um, because that's something that we've we've talked about a lot um, there are we, we see a lot of activities in the area of of hydrogen using hydrogen for propulsion either as a fuel cell or or otherwise um, 
But uh, what always comes up is this concept that uh, how do you make the hydrogen? And is there a, you know, is there a, a clean way to make hydrogen or not? And where do we stand? Is, is, are we just not even close to hydrogen? Are there other alternatives that make a lot more sense now? So hydrogen's an interesting case. Um, if you look at first principles, uh, hydrogen is a great fuel for aviation on a mass basis. It has a lot of energy per unit weight, uh, but it's a terrible fuel on a volume basis uh, because it consumes about four times as much volume as conventional jet fuel. Plus, you can't store the fuel in the wing of the plane. You have to store it in the fuselage of the plane. Um, What's nice about hydrogen is it contains no carbon whatsoever. So if you can produce it uh, in a renewable way, you can burn it in a, a, you know, a modified turbo fan engine, there'll be no carbon emitted. There will be some water vapor and potentially contrail impacts, but it has the potential to be very clean. Uh, you have touched upon the key question, though, right, is how, you, how do you produce it? Um, currently, more than 99% of all hydrogen that's used in the world today is produced by reforming natural gas. It's methane steam reformation. And so that will have a comparable carbon footprint uh, to just burning fossil jet fuel as is. But that, but that's actually true uh, across to all of the alternative fuels. So we talked about sustainable aviation fuels, and it's those do contain carbon. When you burn them, the exhaust looks a lot like if you burn fossil jet fuel. And you're counting on, in essence, reducing the emissions during the fuel production cycle in order to gain the environmental benefits. And it's it, it's also possible to produce a sustainable aviation fuel that is worse for the climate than Jet A. Like palm oil would be a good example, right? Mm. That has all sorts of nasty deforestation impacts. But back to your question. Uh, hydrogen is a mid to long term solution defined as maybe starting in 2035, whereas these sustainable aviation fuels that are the rage today, those are meant to be compatible with existing planes and engines up to a 50% blend. Mm -hmm. And so potentially, if you can produce them in a sustainable way, you can use them in planes today, you can use them in long-haul flights in a way that um, hydrogen will not be appropriate for, for the foreseeable future. Mm. And, and how do we create SAF in, in the volumes that would make a difference? Uh, do, we, do we grow feedstocks specifically for uh, production of SAF? Or, you know, is there enough uh, used cooking oil around to, you know, to manufacture it? Where, where do we get the volumes that we would need? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a key challenge. I mean, in, in general terms, you've got four kind of four types of SAFs. Um, the first are what we call waste oils, fats, oils, and greases or fogs. Uh, and those are the used cooking oil, the beef tallow, et cetera, that we actually see being used today. Moving forward, there's the possibility of generating SAF from other wastes, like agricultural wastes or municipal solid wastes. Uh, that's a bit of an emerging technology, but we're starting to see production from companies like Fulcrum right now. Uh, the third bucket would be what we call purely synthetic fuels. And these would be e-kerosene that you would produce from renewable electricity like solar or wind power combined with captured carbon 
either from a factory or from the atmosphere. Hmm. That's the third bucket. And then the fourth are, are crop-based biofuels. So these would be the fuels you produce from soybeans, from palm oil, from corn. Um, and each of those fuels has a different kind of set of sustainability uh, concerns and scale. But to pick out a couple of the extreme examples, use cooking oil. Um, pretty good for the environment, pretty cheap. Uh, at best, that's going to get you 2% of your jet fuel use. Wow. That's There's just not that much, you know, uh, wasted oil in the world. Opposite side of the spectrum, uh, 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 synthetic fuel like e-kerosene, potentially unlimited supply. Like if you look at the potential supply of solar or wind power, it's tremendous. Uh, but it's an unproven technology and it for the foreseeable future will be rare and expensive. So those are kind of the extremes of the equation. Hmm. This is fascinating stuff, Rob. I have a question, actually, that I should have asked earlier, Dan, uh, but uh, I've been listening to all the great things you're doing, but how is the council funded? Right. Uh, So we get about 85% of our funding from private philanthropy. So like Hewlett Foundation or Packard Foundation would be an example. Uh, We get about 15% of our funding from government contracts in a typical year. So day-to-day... Our work is best described as kind of nonprofit environmental consulting. So my colleagues or I might do a project for uh, the European Commission, or currently I'm I'm working on a study on decarbonizing Great Lakes shipping for the U.S. Maritime Administration. So that's about 15% of our funding. Uh, we don't take any money from industry, and we don't take any money from uh, from. Yeah, environmental NGOs ourselves. So that's how we try to safeguard our independence. I see. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And Dan, what drove you to this uh, this uh, life course? The money. The money. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. This uh, this rich existence in Silicon Valley as an environmental engineer. Yeah. Uh, no, no. Uh, I mean, I've been interested in the environment from the early days. Uh, you know. Uh, as a high school student, I was very into Henry David Thoreau, for example, um, studied environmental chemistry as an undergraduate and then switched fields a little bit and did my graduate work in environmental engineering. But I was really drawn to the international aspect of ICCT's work. And then once I was in and I was flying everywhere in the world, I just calculated the numbers and, you know, flying was 80. 75, 80% of my carbon footprint. So uh, on that basis, I asked my executive director if I could start this program, and I did in 2008, and kind of been growing it since then. Um, But this is really the boom times. I think the first 13, 14 years, I I did kind of feel like I was the lone voice in the wilderness. Yeah. Uh, And then now there's just an explosion of interest, and it's, uh, it's, it's really fun. It's a rewarding time to be doing this. Do you, do you get a lot of pushback from uh, uh, groups or organizations that, that don't believe you guys are on the right track or that don't believe in the messages that that you're creating? Well, um, speaking bluntly, um, trade associations and the ICCT don't get along too well. And let me ex- let me explain why. Um you know, the, there are a lot of 
companies in the world that really believe in sustainability uh, and, you know, are pushing zero emission products. Um, but when you get to the level of lobbying and regulation setting, oftentimes you have trade associations that do the heavy lifting in the lobbying side. And in inevitably, they tend to kind of represent the, the, the common negotiation position, right? across whether it be the airline or the manufacturer or the fuel provider. Uh, ICCT, our, our focus is really to try and identify the best technologies and support and accelerate those. And so we're not in the business of picking like winners or losers per se, but if we see a company that in, in, you know, in, invents that widget or that fuel that is clearly superior, we want policy to reward that. And so that's maybe where the biggest tension is, right? Oh. Um, it's not with United Airlines, for example, or you know um, Tesla or any company in particular. It would be a, a, a you know tension with the lobbyists that try and pretend everyone's above average, right? <laughs> I think that's that's where the tension comes in. Wow, well said. Yeah, yeah. Um, just um, as we uh, start to wrap this up, uh, I'm I'm interested in the in the role of um, the public consumers uh, in terms of their um, uh, their behaviors and their and their actions uh, when it uh, when it comes to you know a sustainable future. Uh, do you see shifts there, or what role does the public play in in all of this? That's one of the interesting emerging areas right now. So you may have noticed that a number of travel search engines have started estimating the emissions uh, per ticket uh, and providing that information to consumers. So Google is one of the big ones. So Google Flights gives you an estimate of CO2 emissions per flight. Um, Kayak does it Skyscanner in the UK is another one. And so that is, that's interesting, right? Like there's every reason to believe that, you know, today 98% of consumers are going to choose tickets based upon some combination of price, schedule, and loyalty. But there is this new group and I'm, I'm making up this number, right? I'll call them the 2% um, that really do care about the environment and potentially would choose a flight because it's less emitting. Uh, and I think that's that's really the group you want to look at, them and frequent flyers who have a lot of sway over individual airlines. Um, so, yeah, it's it's an interesting time. Yeah, it does seem to be creeping in, actually, now that you mention it. Um, I'm, I'm reminded that even uh, navigating with Google Maps now, um, when it's showing you uh, uh, alternate routes, uh, you can pick the fastest route, or uh, now you can pick the uh, most fuel efficient route. I don't know how exactly they, you know, they determine that, um, but um, you know that sort of quietly appeared. So uh, yeah, I mean maybe it is all another step in kind of getting people's minds to think in in this way. Uh, it sounds like, or it feels like, uh, that's a long process, uh, perhaps, but a few steps at a time, I guess. Well, you know, it's funny because what we were talking about earlier, um, you know, with the, the United thing and what have you, um, 
my gut tells me that this is going to happen way past the time that I am no longer here, that I'm part of the fossil fuel uh, supply chain <laughs> or, or something to that effect. Um, but I know we would like it all to be fixed by 2050 because that's that's pretty much what we've heard uh, governments around the world, not all of them, of course. But um, do you think... Well, I don't want to put you on the spot. Is that? Am I being too ambitious to expect that we're really going to have a, a handle on this in 25 years? As you know, from the perspective of like production life cycles of aircraft and how long an aircraft remains in service, 25 years is a pretty short period of time, right? Sure. Uh, our research has actually focused more on the... Um, the how side of things, not the if side of things. So I can't give you a probability that we'll hit Nezer in 2050. What I can say with reasonable precision is if we want to get there, these are the levers that we would need to pull. Uh, but the broader question is, um, will we actually get there? Boy, <laughs> it's, it's a tough nut to crack. I mean, uh, Boeing used to say, Quite bluntly, like the 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 last barrel of oil in the world should be burned in a jet engine, <laughs> um, and and there's a logic to that, right? Like aircraft are are reliant upon extremely energy dense fuels that are predictable and have this exact set of physical and chemical properties uh, for safety reasons, and so this idea that no, that's not true, even aviation needs to get off fossil fuel. That understanding is like five years old. So um, I'm dodging your question, Rob. I don't know what the probability is. Um, I hope we get there. I have a sense of if we're going to get there, how we do it. But yeah, anybody's guess. And I know this is not an exactly an aviation question, but when we started adding ethanol to automobile fuel, I don't know, what, 20 years ago or something like that, um, I believe that was... Was that uh, only to increase fuel mileage, or was that also supposed to be kind of a leading edge of, uh, you know, uh, emissions reducing emissions to some standard? I, I don't, I don't know. It was about air quality, so the idea was to increase the oxygen content in order to uh, have the the gasoline itself burn cleaner. Uh, the irony is subsequently the engine manufacturers figured out it out themselves. So we don't actually need ethanol to uh, control the air pollution. But it was not a climate issue initially. It was uh, an um, air pollution issue. I got you. Thank you. All right. Well, Dan, uh, tell us, uh, where can we learn more about the ICCT or I mean, any other resources you might think of for, for folks who are interested in exploring this in more detail or learning more about it or increasing their awareness? Yeah. So uh, we have a, a, a website, obviously. It's uh, the, dot O-R-G. Uh, and if you go there, actually... 99% of our work is published on the website. So I mentioned we're basically nonprofit environmental consultants. So almost everything that we we research and write, we put on our website. Um, obviously, we have a, 
uh, LinkedIn and uh, Twitter presence as well. But I think um, website is is the best resource. And there's an aviation page and you can dig into our reports there. Very good. Also, finally, any any advice for um, maybe anybody listening who is attracted to this field as a career, how to build their um, their background or their qualifications or their education? Yeah, it's it's a really great time right now. Um, I think, boy, it's almost a question back to you. Um, I see so much energy. He tried now, this like before. Did you this. notice that? Yeah. When, we, when we really cornered him yeah. with something, he said, back to you. Okay, I'm just kidding. Yeah. No, no, it's, it's a question, right? Because um, traditionally, it's been difficult for ICCT to hire experts in this area because we haven't been able to compete with, you know, the salaries and benefits and job security of the aviation industry. But I feel like that's tipping now. I think that there's. Uh, so much interest in the sustainability question that we're going to see more and more folks who, you know, have a professional pedigree uh, who want to work on this. So um, I expect that we'll be hiring a couple of new staff this year. So that's something that people could look at our our careers page. Uh, but yeah, I mean, press the question on the, the manufacturer, or the airline, or the fuel provider that you might be interviewing. Uh, with already is you know how 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 did does your business take sustainability into account in its operations and yeah I, I think it's going to take a little bit of everything yeah mm. is there a, on your career page is there a a, a a a need for geeky people or do you already have plenty of those uh, <laughs> no no uh, geeks are very welcome they're our favorite kind of people see there's hope for me yet yeah I guess so Rob <laughs> I guess so all right Dan thank you so much really appreciate this has it has been really interesting yeah yeah thanks for having me on I think it's been a great conversation okay what's up with the geeks Rob you found a fascinating video well I think it was fascinating. It was about uh, how to fold a paper, a winning uh, entry in the world's uh, uh, paper airplane uh, flight distance contest. And uh, uh, a couple of uh, fellows who are now Boeing engineers uh, flew just short of 300 feet, which is, isn't that the length of a football field? It is. I mean, when you think about it, that's a long way to go with a paper airplane. And I, I know my paper airplanes never went, well, the ones that flew didn't go very far. But, but what I thought was really fascinating about this video is that, and I really encourage all of our listeners to go look at it uh, and, and listen to the directions that the moderator gives uh, about how to... Uh, perfectly fold a paper airplane that will go the distance because after about six minutes of take this corner and fold it down to this crease and then turn it around and bring the now the corner that's in the right up to the corner yes. uh, halfway in the middle of the crease and i said what <laughs> I mean, he, he just completely lost me. So I'm I'm hoping that someone else 
can uh, can have a better a better shot of this than than I did, and uh, that they will uh, be able to create a winning airplane. But you you've got to go listen to the instructions that this fellow gives. Yeah, it's it's great, it, and and you're right. It's it's amazingly complicated, and throughout the process. I kept wondering what this thing was going to look like because I couldn't tell from all the folds and the, you know, all the twists and turns and things. Um, but it ends up being more like a dart than sort of a conventional or, or what you would think of normally when you think of a paper airplane that, you know, uses, you know, lift on its wings. This is more of a dart that you kind of uh, sort of javelin <laughs> to the other end of the football field. Well, but you know, too, uh, one thing they mentioned is it's not just about the folding. It's about the density of the paper that you use to create the airplane uh, because uh, it's it's physics. Uh, I say that to Nancy all the time when she doesn't understand something. I go, it's just, it's physics. You <laughs> yeah, know, it's and, physics. Uh, I had a friend of mine at Northwestern that uh, at the transportation center who was the... Uh, PhD director and you know whenever we would go out he'd say Rob women don't have the physics gene I I mean I know I'm going to get yelled at for a yeah, lot you of are. I, but deservedly I so I did not make this up that was that was Aaron and he's now gone uh but uh, uh it was always a hoot because you know how it is when somebody tells you something and then you say did you ever notice how many red Volkswagens there are out there and you go no. And then every time you look around, you go, oh, there's another red Volkswagen. Mm-hmm. There's another one. And, and somehow when people call your attention to it, you seem to focus on it. Not that I agree with this, uh, but I don't think it, I think it's a good thing. My wife's Ph.D. is not in uh, in, in physics. Uh, <laughs> I'm just saying uh, so you can yell at me, guys. It's OK. So this thing is cool. I mean, if. Uh uh, you can certainly impress your your friends and neighbors with this. This would also, I think, be a really nice thing to do with your kids, you know, you, with your young kids or even your old kids, um, to to show them what they can what they can create. So uh, check it out. It's a YouTube video. Uh, we'll have it in the show notes, along with another video from our friends down under, and it's kind of a teaser. It's titled, There's Been an Awakening. And um, this uh, uh, portends some good news, some exciting news. Uh, it's short, but it'll be in the, uh, in the show notes. And we really invite you to, uh, to take a look at that. I, I labeled it, There's Been a Disturbance in the Force. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, close to that. All right. Um, let's see. A little bit of listener mail. Um, this is from Colin. And Colin wrote to us. He said, I've been a listener for the past couple of years and love your program. I just listened to your interview with Brooke Manley, and I always wondered how someone became an air traffic controller other than coming from the military. And he says, I forget who said it during the podcast, but someone basically said that it's great to learn how the different responsibilities at airports and in the aviation community fit together. So he says, I'm sure you have many listeners that want to work in the airline and aviation industry, but don't realize how many opportunities there are out there other than being a pilot or a flight attendant. I wanted to be a pilot when I was younger, and after taking flying lessons and soloing, I realized I wasn't a good pilot. 
He says, actually, funny story there. I'd like to hear that sometime. Colin says, so I went into another industry and life passed by, but I always yearned to be around commercial aircraft. Now, I like this part. Finally, in my 50s, and hearing that airlines desperately needed employees because of people leaving during the height of COVID, I applied to all the airlines at Logan in Boston. So currently, he's a centralized load controller turnaround coordinator at Boston Logan Airport. Says he, uh, he says, I find it fascinating how everything works together at an airport to bring aircraft in and get them out safely and on time. Oh, and I get to be all over the ramp and even walk under huge international aircraft. I think there's more, but I, th- I just love that. You know, here, here's a, a 50-year-old man that just really was drawn to aviation, never, you know, got into it. And at that stage, you know, in his life said, hey, let's take a jump and found himself a job, which, Rob, I think would be a cool job, actually, <laughs> to be out on the – I mean, I'm sure it's a lot of work, but to be out on the ramp all day, that sounds really exciting. And and unfortunately, although we had uh, people talking about uh, uh, aircraft emissions, aircraft engine emissions, and things like that, uh, when when I went to the airport, I I loved the smell of jet fuel on the ramp, and it was just I thought, wow, this is so cool. I wasn't thinking about the uh, fallout from it, but. Uh, so again, I but but Colin, how do you know you were a lousy pilot? I I mean, I'd like to a hear a story little, there. Yeah, I want to uh, hear that story. I, I want to hear that too. So yeah, yeah, tell us that story, Colin. So he goes on. He says, so to benefit your listeners, you should have more guests to describe and discuss what they do, how they got there, the pay, where you can go from there. Even though it's great hearing from people that have been in the industry for decades. You need to balance it and include people that have recently entered so your listeners know it's possible to break in. I think it would be great to hear from pilots, cabin crew, ramp workers, cargo, ATC, operations, etc. There are so many jobs and companies at a commercial airport that people don't know exist. And many of them are great ways to break into the aviation industry. It says, and keep up the good work. And that's from Colin. So I think we do some of that. Uh, we we try to do uh, to do some of that, but I'm curious. So if if you're listening and you have an interesting aviation job, well, I won't even say interesting. Something that's not a pilot, it's not a flight attendant. Something that's kind of in the corners or edges or you know the cracks of aviation, as I say sometimes. Not that. I'm asking you to volunteer coming on the show, although that could always be a possibility. But just to give us ideas of the kinds of aviation professions that might be interesting to to dig into. And also, if you can think of one of those kinds of aviation professions that you would like to hear more about, send us that too. So you can send all that to the geeks at airplanegeeks.com. And we'll see uh, see what the what the responses are, and we'll see if we can you know accommodate some of them and find some some guests that could um, lead us down some interesting explorations of aviation. 
Yeah, I had a uh, an interview uh, that I did. Oh gosh, last year uh, with a a lady that's involved in the aviation industry, and uh, and she said, "Rob, you're a pilot, and sometimes guys that fly." don't realize all the other things that go on. And I go, well, yeah, I guess. And and she said, in my research, and I won't explain exactly what she does, but she said, I, I believe that for every pilot that is created, there are probably 99 other jobs in the industry that keep airplanes going from the uh, aircraft manufacturers to the people on the ramp to the people fueling, to the uh, people fixing airplanes, to the dispatchers, to the air traffic controllers, to, I mean, there's a gazillion of them. So I, I want to second what you said uh, to, to Colin. And uh, yeah, please give us, uh, uh, or anybody, please give us an idea of the kinds of uh, career that you think is really cool. And, and we'll go out of our way to find somebody that can talk about what they do, and how they got there. Yeah. And then there are people like you, Rob, people that have had many different careers within aviation, right? I mean, uh, you've been an air traffic controller, you've been a pilot, journalist. I mean, you've just done a lot of different things within within aviation. So it doesn't, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that your career has to be just one aspect of it. That's really true. And and somebody told me a long time ago that uh, when I uh, uh, had uh, just finished my bachelor's degree back in another century, um, that in in aviation, it always helps to know how to do something else because you never know when you are going to need that skill, whether it's in your current job or as I've had a number of times happen to me, uh, companies just say, guess what, guys, uh, we're, we're done. Uh, we're over. I mean, uh, you know, my big one was when I was at Midway Airlines and they said, you didn't need to come into work tonight. And I said, oh man, you know, and it was all over. So, well, then what do you do? Uh, you need some kind of, uh, uh, not just a skill, but, uh, uh, an education in kind of pivoting, I think. And, and I, I think maybe if, if anything, that's probably what I, I learned how to do, fairly well. And uh, uh, it, it led to a lot of really interesting experiences in my life. And I'm, I wouldn't miss any of them. Yeah. No, wait, that didn't come out right. I <laughs> would miss all of them. But what I meant is I wouldn't change anything for uh, anything that was going on. Yeah. Yeah. And like in my case, I worked for the same corporation, you know, my entire aviation career, but I moved into different careers within that corporation, right? So, I mean, I I, I started in, in IT uh, and I retired out of the legal department. And, you know, in between, there was everything from manufacturing to HR to, uh, you know, finance. I mean, just everything you can think of. But you're not an attorney, are you? No, but I'm not an attorney. No, no. Um, so anyway, there's there's lots of ways. There's I'll just say there's different ways that you can have a really fulfilling career in in aviation, and um, I, I just think it's so cool that that Colin you know got to the point where he said, "Hey, I'm I'm in," you know, and he he jumped in and uh, and he's got he's got a job there. Very good. 
it, it it's like me. The reason why I got my dream job was because I had retail experience. Well, that's right, because you were in a different, you were in a, you were in a non-aviation industry. Yeah, and it was, you know, and unfortunately, it was let go. But the reason why I got into the museum was not necessarily as a curator or an exhibit designer to start with, but because I had retail experience, and now I've transitioned into other things. But yeah, it... It helps to know more than one thing. Even if, I agree with, I think it's a unanimous decision that in this day and age, you're not in doing the same thing for 45 years. You are in and out of careers and careers change and, and knowing a little bit about everything is, is not a bad thing. So diversify. I mean, we've had pilots, we've had pilots on here um, who besides being pilots or flight instructors or college professors, you know, and that those kind of things are important. You know, you're doing, doing what you love, but you, there's also other things that may not be directly, but tangential and may lead later to really good things. So, and, and I think it's also uh, important to say that uh, there's nothing wrong with raising your hand when somebody says, Oh well, I wish we knew somebody that could do that, and you don't have exactly that experience to go. You know what? I could figure that out. I I could do that, and just raise your hand because the worst that's going to happen is they're going to say no, and and you know what? Then you're just on to looking for the next job. There's lots of opportunities. All right. Well, we're going to wrap it up. We want to thank our guest this episode, Dan Rutherford, Program Director for the International Council on Clean Transportation. Again, their website is theicct.org. You can find them there. We focused on, uh, obviously, on aviation, um, but the um, the ICCT is uh, uh, looks at transportation more broadly than that. So if you have uh, that interest as well, be sure to check them out. And you can find us on airplane or at airplanegeeks.com. The email address for us is thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. Uh, we have show notes on the website for every episode. And if you want to go right to the show notes for this episode, of course, that's airplanegeeks.com slash 739. That's the episode number. All right. David Vanderhoof, anything uh, you want to close with? Uh, you can, of course, find me at the American Helicopter Museum. I'd be lurking there all the time. And they pay me to do it. So every every day I go to work, I'm thankful being able to be to have that. And someone's going to give me a check to play with aircraft, mm -hmm. in this case, helicopters. But um, other than that, you can find me on social media. You can find me on our Slack listener team. And you do that by sending us an email to thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. And, of course, um, you know, I, I, I'm excited that there's been an awakening um, and I'm also happy that my dog is only 18 pounds <laughs> and not capable of climbing on the desk and or knocking the whole place over, but does have the capability of knocking me flat on my ass. So, <laughs> all right, Rob, how about you? 
Oh, they find me at all the usual places, um, in the pages of Business Commercial Aviation and uh, a few other magazines and at jetwine.com, at the Chicago Executive Pilots Association, and uh, I don't know where else, but... You know, everything is legal these Nancy's days. Nancy's beck and call? Nancy's beck and call. In, in fact, uh, she's going to swat me if she ever hears that uh, no physics gene comment. So uh, <laughs> please don't, uh, please, I take full responsibility for quoting my uh, late friend. And uh, uh, it, it wasn't my fault. I just, okay, I'm just going to shut up now. Okay, thanks. Um if you haven't figured it out, Max Trescott dropped off uh, a while ago. He's uh, He connected in a hotel room, and the hotel Wi-Fi was just not really behaving well, and he kept dropping off. So he finally uh, threw in the towel, which I can understand, having having been there before many times. And I'm Max Flight. You can find me at 30,000feet.com. That'll tell you all the places where you can find me. Uh, look for me on Mastodon. Um, I found uh, I found Dan on Macedon the other day, actually. Um, so that that community is growing, and uh, you mean the Dan, the, the Dan. Dan of old? No, 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 Dan. Rutherford. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I was thinking. Yeah, okay. Duh. The other Dan. The original cut, Dan. cut, cut that part out because I. Yeah, anyway. All right. So please join us next week as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Oh, I'm sorry. Wait. Uh, nighty nighty, everybody. Oh, screw it. Bye. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs>